Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Back in 2020, I interviewed Master Gunnery Sergeant Scott Stalker about the future of war. He joins us again to discuss what he's learned about leadership during his three decades as a United States Marine. We also discuss leading in combat situations and how the lessons he's learned apply to leaders in a corporate environment. We end the interview with a discussion on the role of love in leadership. Master Gunnery Sergeant Stalker is Command Senior Enlisted Leader of U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs. During his service, he's been deployed all around the world with combat experience in places like Somalia and Iraq. 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software, an employee-centric platform that merges impactful proven leadership and performance models with the tools, resources, and support that your people need to thrive. Learn more at InspireSoftware.com. Master Gunnery Sergeant Stalker, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Don. It's great to be back. But let's just start out with your service background. I'm a few months shy of 30 years and started off in the Marine Corps as an intelligence specialist. I actually came in to go infantry and then uh, passed a few tests and they said, we'll put you in intel. So I've served the majority of my capacity in the intel profession. My first four years were on deployments with what we call the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And so we went to places like Somalia. So as we talk about combat leadership, I can talk about my time there. We did a non-combatant evacuation in Albania. Toronto in the embassy. And so we can talk about that there. And then I had some time in Hawaii working in intelligence missions there. Came back and got into the uh, infantry side of the house doing intel work with 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, deployed to Okinawa as a team. And then as I came back shortly thereafter, 9-11 happened. And then the world changed, as we all know, and then deployed multiple times to combat with the regiment. And, uh, and then in between that, I got to do an awesome job in Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and Cambodia, where we did recovery missions for our MIAs and POWs. So that was a great mission. We can talk about some of the unique leadership challenges there, working with foreign partners, but all working towards a singular mission. Came back and did another deployment to Iraq for 13 months into CRIT, and that was the last time that I saw combat in 2007, 2008 timeframe. And then from there, I went to an intel organization in Quantico, finally made E9 in 2010. So I've been an E9, a Master Gunner Sergeant, which is our senior rank for about 12 years now and served in special operations, cyber. And then I got picked up to do a job as the senior enlisted leader for the defense intelligence. I had a chance to compete for the National Security Agency and Cyber Command senior enlisted position, got that. And then later I was able to compete for this job here at Space Command and do that. So summarize 30 years in about 30 seconds, but that's my career so far. Yeah, it's remarkable what you can do over the course of three decades. Yes, sir. You've been here now for two years. Can you talk yeah. about the changes that you've seen being command senior enlisted leader of U.S. Space Command? Yeah. So a lot of them are focused on, we are focused on a mission and an outcome. And so we've been working really hard to develop our operational plans and then to develop a culture focused on warfighting. And that may sound odd to folks because space, you're not, we're not up there like Luke Skywalker and fighting. However, we've got to provide capability to those in the Navy, Army, Marine Corps, Space Force, Air Force, you, you name it. And so working on a culture of urgency, making sure people realize if we have a power outage in this building, we've got to work on correcting that right away, just as we would in combat. If you look at Space Command when it opened and in, in, when we started this in 1985, and then it was shut down in 2001 because of 9-11, we had to put forces elsewhere. It was a pretty benign environment. And so the culture did not have to respond to 
an urgency of warfighting as much. Now we have to, because our adversaries understand that we have space superiority, that we rely on it heavily. And if they can shut that down, deny, degrade our ability to use space capability, it's going to be hard to communicate. It's going to be hard to use precision guided munitions. It's going to be hard to navigate to get our logistics in certain places or to just have our own way of life as Americans and allies and partners that think the same way we do. To do things like use your phone and GPS to come here, to update your social media, to use an ATM. And so it's really been a focus and a shift towards a mentality of every person here matters. Everyone, every person that has a job, it's focused on our warfighting mission set. I think the average citizen probably didn't give space a whole lot of thought the first yeah. time that we talked back in 2020. And space has gotten a whole lot more crowded over the last couple of years. I don't know if you would agree with that. But I would agree the, with that. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, sorry to interrupt there, but I, what I wanted to say was specific to that is when I saw you two years ago, we were in the 20,000 pieces of debris. Since then, the Russians on the 15th of November shot down their own satellite last year. That left more pieces of debris, over 1,000. And we're now tracking over 40,000 pieces of debris, objects, and things in space. So contested, congested, it's very challenging. And so we're looking at ways using our commercial partners to, to say, is there a way to clean that up? Is there a way to have responsible options where if you put something in space at a certain point, you've got to bring it back down responsibly? And so you heard the vice president talk about how we would not do any more direct ascent ASAT missile testing in space. We want to be responsible. And in order to be responsible, you can't just talk about it. You have to lead. And so this administration has talked about how we're going to lead in that effort. What's the likelihood that some of this debris is going to cause problems to active satellites and other things that we might have up in space? And we meaning humanity, not just the United States. Yeah. And that's, the, and that's what matters is the humanity. It's not just our special spy satellite or something. It's truly the greater we, all of humanity. Numbers wise, I couldn't give you a percentage, but we track it. Every single piece, we track that here at Space Command. And so when or if we thought there would be a likelihood of it hitting anything, we send out alerts, we let folks know so that if there's a way to maneuver, if there's a way to adjust, then we do that. But on the 15th of November, you might've read this in the paper when that, when the Russians did that, we were on the phone and we were talking to those in NASA just in case the International Space Station was going to get hit by a piece of debris that would cause great damage. And just in case we had to alert them to potentially evacuate. And so luckily we did not have to do that. But Ambassador Nelson has talked about that publicly as well. But the greater concern, though, is not just that. Let's just say, for example, you know, we take out your direct TV is if we take out. And that's just a, an easy example. But if, if a satellite gets taken out and it gets hit and then now that leaves debris this could have a cascading effect where more debris creates. And then soon you're back to pre-Vietnam War in, in that type of time. It's really important that people are, nation states, corporations are very responsible with how they put things up there. And so we're trying to lead by that example. Others aren't. I'm starting to draw the connection between cyber and yes. space command now right it, it, the more i hear you talking about it it's not just keeping our military operational it's keeping the country operational they're the great enablers can we live without cyber okay we have we've lived majority of our time as humans without cyber we've lived the majority of our time without space but it's a quality of life we want we want to be able to do things on our phone take nice vacations get on the internet record a video have a podcast and so that's why we need the space capabilities in cyber as well Switching over to leadership, how do you see your role in creating culture for the organization you're leading? 
I think when we talk about leadership, the first thing we have to have is someone who is able to think far out, almost futuristic three to four years. Because if you're just thinking six months to a year, you're probably not leading, you're managing. And so first and foremost, there's a difference between leadership and management. My role in this culture really is that I do talk about it a lot, but I also try to walk the walk and I use stories. I use vignettes. I talk about urgency and why it does matter. And so, you know, my team would tell you you the other day we had an outage here and my response was call everyone in just like we would in combat and let's get this fixed. Let's not be okay with we'll get it done tomorrow morning or that sort of thing. So it's a mindset and it is urgency led by the person. Now, urgency doesn't mean chaos. And one of the most important things for a leader in combat is to be calm in that crisis. And I remember a specific event when I was in Al-Assad. I was in 7th Marine Regiment. I was the intel watch officer. I had a captain who was the operations officer. And right behind us, a 107 millimeter rocket hit, kind of right behind the wall. And it was a loud boom. It shook the place up and everything. But I also knew that I had a watch to man. I had a job to do and I had to report out. The officer kind of struggled with that. And so he was a bit chaotic. I had to pull him aside and say, hey, captain, we got to get this together. We got to lead through this. This isn't going to be the last time this happens, but we have a job to do. Let's radio this in and hopefully our Marines out there can take the individual out or the individuals out that is doing this. And so it's really important to be calm in crisis. If I ran around this building with my head cut off every day, everyone would be paranoid and nervous for no reason at all. And so while I can be frustrated and angry and disappointed, and sometimes I get that way, I got to shut the door and relax, maybe do some extra push-ups. calm in crisis. It's critical. Are there things that you do to create the behaviors that are desired for the team? including maybe getting consensus from the team. These are the things that are mandatory. These are the things that are optional, that that sort of behavioral shaping or shifting. Yes. So first off, it's a layered approach. It's not going to be me instantly standing up in front of everyone, giving the knife hand and saying, this is what we're going to do. It's layered approach. And then it's, you really want buy-in, whatever the topic is. And so we had just the other day, I had all my E9s together, my senior enlisted leaders, and I walked them through what's going on. I told them why it's happening, context matters. And then I wanted to get their feedback. What do you see in there? Tell me your feedback, give it all to me. And so that's the layered approach. And then I let them know that in February of next year, I will be teaching a developmental course for five days. And so I start with smaller elements and then working my way up. But again, it's having that long-term approach to things so that you're truly leading and not managing. You're not, you're just not waking up next week and saying, let's do this now. There, there's an end state, there's a goal to developing our people Because as we talked about, I'm leaving in 11-ish months and someone will replace me and they'll do a great job. They'll take the baton and they'll move forward as all military services do. And I hope that when I leave, folks will say, you know, hey, Master Guns prepped me for this. He uh, helped me understand this a little bit. There's always going to be more to learn. I'm not going to leave here and the job's done and we can all go home. But having a plan to develop your people and really in a phased approach where you're starting again with my senior leaders first and then the larger group. And then hopefully when I leave, they're also developing their people. So that's that layered piece to it. When you leave an assignment like this and somebody else comes in, yeah. what sort of continuity is there or is there a, a desire for the new person to come in and shape things the way they want things to, to work or operate? How does that generally work? Yeah, so I'm already thinking through a lot of that. I've had conversations with folks that, that do my housing. So that individual, the day they arrive, they go right into the house. And so small things like that, all of those details, I want that person to instantly be welcomed, their badges, all those little things are done as was handled for me. But on the, on the other side is I will walk them through 
everything we've done so far, what has worked, what maybe what I haven't got to yet. And then I'm mindful of the fact that they will have a new commander. They may have a new administration. They may have new requirements. The operating environment may change, whether we're in conflict or peace. And so you do your best to prepare them for them. You give them your personal cell phone number. You let them know you're always there. And then you stay out of it. You don't go back and say, that's not how I did it. You don't talk publicly and counsel them publicly or say, when I was there, things were going great. That's unprofessional. I think you do everything you can behind the scenes to help that person out. I like to think I, I do that behind the scenes to this day. Advise them if they ask and then stay out of their way. Generally, what's the time frame when the successor is announced and then they take over? Yeah, so we've worked it now that at the level I'm at, the time frame from the nomination process to when they'll get here is inside of nine months. Meaning if this person is in Korea, my replacement, they have time to, to check out of their organization, to have their own little farewell there, to have their family packed up, to take some time off, and then to get out here and settled. That wasn't necessarily the case for me, but it was different then because when I got here, this was a brand new kind of a command. And the individual was both the chief master sergeant of the Space Force at the Pentagon, and he was doing my job, which is impossible to do both. And so I had to get out here right away. And that was fine. That was understandable. My family and I, we adapted. But you want to give the person that much time. And then when they get here, I think no more than two weeks where we will actually sit down, go over things. I'll drive them around to different places, point things out to them. We'll have office calls with certain individuals so that the day they take the baton from me, I am gone. I will depart. Again, they'll have my number. If they don't reach out, no hard feelings. If they do, I'll be there to help them out. It's a huge luxury to have that overlap and to yeah. have you helping them onboard because I can tell you in corporate America, succession planning doesn't work this smoothly. I don't know if there's any difference here, but uh, this is my brand and Space Command and the Marine Corps. I've, I'm a part of that forever. And so I don't think it's right to just depart if I can help it. And then I also, there's so many people that I love and care about that are in this building that I've worked with that I want to make sure that the individual who does replace me, I've given them everything I can. Obviously, things will change a little bit. Their leadership style will be slightly different based on their experiences and guidance, but it would be wrong to just say, okay, you got it, figure it out. And so as best I can, that won't happen. What's your approach to empowering a team? And I want to hear your approach as you're taking on a new assignment and then as you've been in the role for now two years? Yeah. My approach is if I'm the smartest person in the room, we have issues. And so my teammates here at Space Command, when it comes to space operations, cyberspace intelligence, they're doing it every day. It would be wrong of me to not empower them to do that. But what I'm trying to get when I'm working with them collectively, it's, hey, here's the greater mission we're working towards. Here's what General Dickinson, the commander, is having us drive to. And so as you're doing that, I want you to think of these few things, but I don't go down to the Intel section and say, hey, I want the report to look this way, or I want the thing to look this way. Now, if there are minor adjustments, I'll find the officer off to the corner and say, hey, here's some intent from the commander or for me. And I've done this a couple of times today even, but then you got to empower your folks because if you want to be in everyone's chili in an organization like this, you're going to have a lot of problems. You're going to have failures everywhere. And so as it comes to taking on a new role, the most important thing you can do is remember you've got one mouth and two ears. And so sitting in these meetings for your first month or two, it's best to listen. It's best to know the experts. It's best to know who the right people are to have these conversations with. And then as you start to understand this a little more, then it's a good idea to say, hey, have you thought of it this way? 
Or in my last organization, this worked. Maybe it'll work here or maybe it doesn't. And, and so it's more of a suggestive type of empowerment and giving them some thoughts. But given that I'm in a lot of the four-star meetings and I understand where the Secretary of Defense and the President and, and our commander are moving us, it would be wrong for me not to speak up in these meetings too because they need to hear, hey, here's what's here's the conversations behind closed doors that you need to be aware of. And here's why we need reports done this way, or here's why we need this right away. And that one can delay a month or two. And so that tends to be my approach, but there's no checklist. There's no, it's not the three-step check to empowerment. And then you've got it right. It's each one is situational dependent. Let's talk about feedback for a minute. Yeah. So what's your approach to, let's start with giving feedback and then we'll talk about soliciting feedback in a minute. Yeah. Honesty, right? So if you come on the gate and they get it wrong, uh, you don't go to your house and, and write a post on social media. You don't do a silly TikTok video and talk about the idiocy of an individual. You address it right there. And it's more often than not, it's not malicious. No, someone's not trying to get something wrong. It's an opportunity to educate and correct. If my team, we have a really a great team and we talk about this all the time. It's not that we got something wrong or even that we did something right. It's that we have a culture there of how do we improve. And I was listening to an interview the other day with Nick Saban. And he was talking about they had just won a football game. And he said, that's great. Now we got to see how we can improve on that. This individual could have caught the ball. This individual missed a tackle. And it's not to berate them, you know, to beat them up. But you want to have a culture and a climate of, man, I could do, I could still get better. I can still do more and improve. And once you get that, it's almost a point of pride of, yeah, wow, that, it was great. We did a great job. I mean, we've gone on a lot of trips, my team and I, into a lot of places. I can't even remember half of them. But every time we talk about, okay, what could we have done better? There's, and there's always things. A lot of it's on me. There's a speech I could have given. There's a, a point I could have made. But even after this, we'll assess, okay, here's a couple of things we could have done better. We'll get it next time. And so that's a collective postmortem and everybody is able to give their feedback on what happened. And then there's no shame if somebody points somebody else out as... They could have done something better. Or yeah, because I don't think we do it in the, you know, hey, Smith, you really screwed up there. This is how you could have done, done that. First off, I'm, I've got a lot of professionals there. It's more of, and I try to start it with, hey, what do we think we could have gone better? And oftentimes they'll be harder on themselves than I will. And it's like, yeah, okay, you could have done that, but let's not beat ourselves up about that. And then let's move on. What is the hardest part is as a leader, and General Dickinson talks about this all the time, is he needs someone who is going to tell him when he's wearing no clothes. And so the point is, as a leader, very few people will give you that hard feedback. And so you got to be mindful of not patting yourself on the back all the time, not falling in love with yourself and finding people who will actually give you feedback. Not again, to be brutally hard on you, but how do I improve? And so normally I'm that one and maybe a couple others who will tell the commander, here's a couple of things I think you can do better. But for the most part, a lot of officers in this building and enlisted and civilians have opportunities to get promoted again. And so it's challenging for them to maybe say, hey, sir, you, you could have done this or that a little bit better. That's my role and I've got to do that. Well, that's a key point. And so how do you solicit that feedback? First, I am very hard on myself. I am brutally hard on myself. I'll go home tonight and I will assess everything. That, that's just in my nature. But when I say brutally hard on myself, I'm not to the point where I'm like in my head deflating, but I'm challenging myself on how to get improved. So I think I'm not going to read the headlines and I'm not going to listen to what well, you did great. I'm looking at how do we get better? And then the other part is trust. There are a lot of people that I trust will give me that feedback. You've got to have trust there. Absolutely. I realize that folks, I wish it wasn't true, but some are intimidated by me. So you got to set the conditions for, I want to hear how we can do better. And what are some things we could have done collectively? I don't think we make such mistakes in the office where there's going to be a lot of times where 
wow, we got to pour this over and really fix this. Sometimes there are. And then I like to believe that I've got the team on my side that would give me that feedback if I needed it. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, actually. It was related to an event and they didn't give me feedback in the sense that it was things I could improve on, but they reminded me that, hey, you can still do better here. And that was necessary because I was being told the thing that I did was really done well. And that's great, but still, it's a constant state of improvement. It is the Bill Belichick conversation where he was talking about how they had just won the Super Bowl. And his point was, that's great. We're several weeks behind everyone else. It's that type of mindset. And it's not for everyone, but it is for me. So you talked about trust building. And I find the military to be really fascinating, particularly military leadership, because you are rotating into different assignments. And it seems like you have to build trust very quickly. What are some of the ways in which you do that? Professional reputation. So by now, most folks in the joint force at the level I'm at will know who I am. And if there are a lot of negativity and baggage with that, I've earned that. If there are positives and quality remarks about that, you've earned that. And so if I'm getting ready to work with a new commander or bring someone in, I'm checking on their professional reputation. I'm going to talk to folks that know who they are, people that I trust. So they're not going to badmouth someone just for the sake of badmouthing them. But then I have to also be open to giving new people an opportunity. And so that's critical too. We're going to bring a new teammate into our office here shortly, and she'll be a part of the team. I don't know many people that know her, but I know the organization she came from. And it just so happened I was in Scotland with a few of those Navy SEALs that she was walking on a long ruck mark with. And so I talked to them and she has a great professional reputation. That's something you can't fake. You can change your bio photo and you can touch that up a little bit. You might look a little nicer. You can probably even look thinner. I've seen the Kim Jong-un photo, uh, both chunky and on a diet. Great. You can modify your bio. You can find someone who's really good at grammar to to make it look really beautiful and make it seem like you're God's gift. But professional reputation, you can't fake. That follows you. And you've earned that by and large. Some people, you're not going to please everybody. But by and large, professional reputation is what you got to check on. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways in which we can motivate people. Fear is a motivator. Recognition is a motivator. Career development is a motivator. What are some of the ways in which, or what are some of the tools that you use to motivate the people on your team? Yeah, everyone has a carrot, right? Is what they say. And so there are transactional leaders. You can talk about, hey, if you do this, you can have a day off. Some respond to that. What I think you have to do is inspire, not necessarily motivate, is inspire them and then let them see that you're willing to do the same thing, whether that's the long hours, the hard deployments, whether it is a speaking engagement, a technical requirement, going out into the cold, going on a long ruck march. You got to inspire your people. And that's folks tend to want to be led, but they don't want to be led by someone who gets up in front of them with a postcard and reads to them. Can you inspire your individuals to say, this is why we're going to do a certain mission set? And it's not something that happens overnight. They certainly get to know your professional reputation. They know who you are, what you can do. And then that does motivate them. But motivation isn't something that will always be on. Everyone's going to have a bad day. Maybe they don't want to come into work today or they need a day off or whatever. But ultimately, they have an inspirational leader not necessarily a motivational. That's why I worry about, you know, I I listen to a motivational speaker. It's, is that person inspiring you for greatness, inspiring you to do more? And I think the best way to do that, Don, is when you sit down with them is to remind them of why they came in. Hey, you came in and you wanted to do this. I see so much in you and you're not quite getting there yet, or you're exceeding and maybe we need to put more on you 
or promote you or that sort of thing. And it's sitting them down and being frank with them and having that heart to heart and then talking about where does this go in the future for you? I use the conversation. Folks have heard me say this a lot. Pretend you're a grandparent. And you got your child on your grandchild on your lap. And what are you reflecting on? What are you proud of? Now go do those things. And whether that's a business owner of being a father, a senior enlisted leader, I don't know, go pursue that. And there's a way to get there. But more often than not, you need a leader who's going to help you get there and put that together. And I think it comes more through inspirational leadership, certainly not transactional. Around here, getting a day off, okay, great. But there's only so many times you can play that game. Career development or development in general, learning new things is one of the strongest drivers of employee engagement and retention. And I've been doing surveys for over 20 years. It's typically the top one or two drivers of engagement. And I know in the military, there's a process for developing people, but could you talk a little bit about your approach to development and maybe specifically how you identify people who need certain things and they may not even know they need those things? The approach is deliberate. It is designed, it is planned, it is the understanding that, again, you've got to start with your core group of leaders to get them to understand, to buy in. And then it is putting a plan together to develop your people. I had a course that I taught a few months ago here at the command where I brought a fair amount of our mid-level enlisted leaders and I exposed them to things that they may not ever need to use or may not use for 10 or 15 years in their career. But what concerns me is oftentimes what we call professional military education comes in the joint world sometimes too late. So for example, you may have finally been able to go to a certain course because of your position, but you may only have a couple more year, years left and you're going to retire. Wow, it would have been nice if you learned that six or seven years ago. And so when I, what I've tried to do is take a lot of that joint enlisted development stuff that's already out there, but I've been afforded the opportunity to go through a long time now and teach that to my individuals and then get them to marinate in it and think through it and then challenge one another. And when I do that, I assign a mentor to each little group. Okay, I taught X for several hours. Now you're going to sit down with your mentor and talk through this. And if it didn't make sense, let's talk about that because the mentor will tell me that maybe the students won't. And then over the next few days, we can do that. We're going to do that again in February, 6 to 10 February. We're going to do that here. And that'll probably be the last time that I do a large one, just given my timeline. But when we talk about development, here's a guy who now has months left in the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps reached out to me recently and said, we're going to send you to one more course in December. And I'm going to go do that. It's at John Hopkins. I'm honored to go to such a prestigious university and test that out for the Marine Corps as they look to develop their next generation of senior enlisted leaders. And so the Marine Corps lives it, and I want to make sure we live it here as best we can, but it's deliberate. It can't just be accidental. It can't be, hey, let's put something together. It has to be deliberate, and there's a path and a plan forward. You had mentioned mentorship, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it, it wasn't on my radar to ask you about. But Can you talk about who your mentors have been, and do you still have a mentor? Yeah, I do. And so... I'm cautious to give a lot of names. You don't have to give names. Okay. Maybe you can talk in general about who they are and, and what they've meant to you. I'll start with my first one in my first unit, Sergeant Major Ron Kirby, who literally sat me down, who had the time at that smaller squadron level unit to sit me down and to develop me and then to tell me, here's, you can do so much more if you're willing to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and he helped me receive many meritorious promotions, which are promotions, you know, ahead of your peers. And it's due in part to him. 
When I took over the job at the Defense Intelligence Agency about seven years ago as a senior enlisted leader, he was there for me. And so that was a mentorship from him. I have a couple of corporate CEOs that are mentors that I've reached out to and, and we talk to a lot now, predominantly because as I move on, I want to understand what that is. I have an individual who was an E9 who now owns his own business and talks a lot about the transition process. And excuse me, he's a mentor of mine. My former director at the Defense Intelligence Agency is someone I love because he'll always give it to me straight, is a mentor of mine. And quite frankly, I've had some challenges from time to time during my life in the last two years that I've privately talked to uh, General Dickinson. And I don't, he's my commanding officer. And so I don't necessarily call him a mentor, but I've asked him a few times, hey, sir, you know, is this something that, that you're seeing? Is this something that you're dealing with? Or, hey, sir, here's a life event going on for me. I just want you to be aware of it. Do you have any advice? And so him and I have that relationship too. What about younger people? And I, the reason why I ask this is now I'm 54. I just turned yeah. 54. And you're younger than I am. We're getting older. Yeah. <laughs> There's a generation underneath us. Yeah. So, right? so for the audience, Don said he edited this out. He said, you're much younger than you're I much am. Much younger, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're much younger than I am. Yeah. But still, there is a generation underneath us. Yeah. And the world has changed. And I'm reading about this constantly now. And I've started to consider creating a 12 Geniuses youth yeah. network or circle that I can meet with, take di out to dinner once a quarter and just find out what's important to them. Do you have any sort of, it's referred to as reverse mentorship or young people who are mentoring you or kind of helping you understand what it's like to be a 20 something or a 30 something? I haven't thought of it that way. There are individuals that I mentor that are much younger. I mentor an awful lot of people, usually on the weekends, virtually around the globe. And then in here in the building, folks reach out to me and I do mentorship for them. What they don't realize is based on those conversations, I always get a lot out of it. And so while I don't think of it as, as Staff Sergeant Smith or Technical Sergeant Jones is mentoring me, I gain a lot from that. And it could be things that are going on in the world. It could be things that they are dealing with that I just don't have to deal with. As simple as the parking area, you know, I have a reserved spot, so I may not be aware of something as minor as that or the challenges of getting a badge in the building and the bureaucracy there. Those are internal challenges, but also it could be, here's some new things with technology. And so as I mentor those individuals and they think that I'm giving them all the right answers, it's more often than not, I'm taking an awful lot of notes and learning from them. I'm in a thing, a program right now called the Irregular Warfare Initiative. And it's a cross between West Point and Princeton. It's a year-long program. Every And we just met yesterday. We had a very senior panel that was giving us some thoughts to think about. Everyone in there except one other person has a PhD. Several of them are younger than I am. They are brilliant. These are professors. These are academic, really brilliant people. And so I don't know if the term mentor would fit, but wow, I'm learning a lot from them. That's for sure. And you've got to be humble, right? If you think just because you're older, you got all the answers, wow, you're going to fail quickly. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about yet is values. And most organizations have values. Can you talk about the values that the Marine Corps has or even U.S. Space Command has and how you use those values? Yeah, the Marine Corps are, are pretty simple. People know what those are, honor, courage, and commitment. And that honor is a powerful word. And it's something that means an awful lot to me. You cannot deface the Marine Corps. You're not allowed to badmouth the Marine Corps. Now, we have folks that, that joke and laugh. But the other services, that, especially the people that know me, they know that I never poke fun or, or laugh or joke at, on the behalf of the other services either because I want to keep their honor clean. That is a big deal. I, I've used this example before. I don't know that I've talked to you about it before, but this test of character. 
And it's a simple one where, you know, when it's cold and wet outside um, and you're coming back from the grocery store, you've put all of your groceries in the car, the parking lot's empty, it's dark out, it doesn't matter. Do you have the commitment and the honor? Do you have the pride in yourself enough to return that shopping cart uh, or do you just leave it there for other people? That's a simple test. And I'm not saying if it's dark outside and you're a, an old uh, person or you're scared, you, you, you know, you need to do that. But in general, do you have pride enough in yourself to do what's right always. And it's, it, again, it's not, this is not a job for me. This is a profession, which means 24 seven, I'm a United States Marine and I'm a command senior leader, leader of space command. Um, and that means something to me. And that my, my team hopefully knows no matter what time you call me, email me, if I need to, I'm going to respond. I'll be in the building to, to be there for you. And it, again, it's just a lifestyle. And if it's not for you, you got to find something else. But I tell everyone all the time, you joined the Marine Corps, you joined the Air Force, the Space Force, they didn't join you. You committed to it, whether it's three years, four years, 30 years, you raised your right hand, you swore an oath to the Constitution, and that should mean something to you. That should mean something to your family and the pride of your last name, the service that you represent. Let's pivot. Let's pivot. So we were texting back and forth. I said, I want you back on the show. I want to talk about leadership. And you sent me a text. And the text read, how do you get someone to request to join you as you run into the sound of gunfire? Yeah. That's leadership. So talk about that statement or that question. What do you mean by that? So that is the highest comment or statement that anyone can ever put on your evaluation in the Marine Corps is I would actively seek out Don McPherson to be on my team in combat. That means something. If you get that statement, wow, there's nothing more than that. And so what does that mean? That means you have developed a professional reputation, that you're calm in crisis, that you're able to add value to your team, to your commander, that you're going to be committed, that if someone happens to be having a bad day or they're in charge of you and you disagree, you're going to tactfully give them your advice and then you're going to execute that lawful order. And it's all encompassing to that, knowing that Especially, here's an example. When I was at 7th Marines, I was a gunnery sergeant, E7, so pretty senior. This was in 2003. And my company commander at the time was younger than I am. Okay. That didn't matter to me at all. That company commander was a company commander. He was given the authorities to execute the mission. But what I loved about him is he would ask me my thoughts on some things. And whether we agreed or not, and didn't necessarily matter. That was the commander we were going to execute as necessary. And so I think it's all of that together. And then over time, people realize Scott, Sam, Joe, whoever, Lauren, I'll throw her name out there. You know who I'm talking about. Those are people that I would actively seek out and I'd want to be a part of their team in combat. And so it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't, it's not something that you get there right away, but it's showing as a person that, hey, I might not be the smartest in the room, the physically strongest in the room but I've got the grit and I'll put the work in to get there to be the best teammate possible and be able to execute our mission set. You talked about being calm under pressure. Yeah. Is that innate in a person or is it developed or is it both? I think it can be innate. I don't think everyone is instantly born with it though. Being blown up or shot at naturally, you're going to snap for a minute and try to figure out and assess the situation. But as you mature and you go through training, and that's why I really push for tough and realistic training as best we can, really realistic training, you get more sets and reps with those situations. Just like a quarterback going through a training camp, if the first time they ever get hit in their life is at game one, 
they're not going to have the resilience, the toughness to continue to push on. And so you've got to have done those sets and reps in training, in a live environment as much as possible, which is why experience matters. It's why you tend to get promoted after you have experience, because I have seen firsthand leaders that, that lose their mind, that are yelling and screaming in combat, and they tend to go away quickly. I'm not saying you're a librarian and you're so calm that you're not really there, but being crystal clear with your orders, with your guidance and your direction. And it may not be you're the commander, but you understand the commander's intent. You're relaying it to your folks and we're going out and we're executing what we call mission command to get the job done. But that calm in crisis, again, I'm not trying to rhyme here, but that is critical to everything we do as leaders. As soon as you lose it, your men, your women will see it and they'll start to question. And when you start to question things in combat, when things happen in microseconds, women and men get killed. Yeah. I'm glad you explained that it's innate for some people and it's learned through training for others. And I get really annoyed with people who say, if I had been in that situation, I would have done this. And I'm just like, I would like to believe that I would do this, play the hero, go after an active shooter or something like that. But I, I've never been in that situation. Oh, I, I yeah. have no idea how I would behave. That's not a smart way to live. We visited Roy Benavidez recently. We were out in Texas and I challenge anyone to read about Roy Benavidez, who was a master sergeant in the United States Army Special Forces. And I have read everything he's ever done. I could probably walk you through second through second what he has done. And I try to ask myself, how would I have done this? And he has since passed on. He received the Medal of Honor for his actions in Vietnam. But I've always said before, if there was a medal or a recognition higher than a Medal of Honor, Roy Benavidez would have earned it. He's just a remarkable person. I'd like to think that through my training and through my toughness and through my patriotism and love for my teammates, that the things he did, I would have done. But I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, I can armchair quarterback everyone's decisions they've made in life, especially when they're under stress and time crunches or may not have the weapons they need or the resources they need. Uh, I, I think that's really immature to do that, especially in public. There's a time to do that in private to assess the situation, but in public, we don't do that. We shouldn't. Can you talk about the importance of mindset when preparing for combat? Yeah, I can. I think mindset is critical and it's not the day you get off the plane or the boat or the truck and get on the dirt for the first time. It is well before that. It is making sure that team you had, whether it's a squad, whether it's a company, so we're 12 people or 300 people, it's sitting down with each individual and getting to understand that we're no longer in rehearsal. We're no longer practicing. We're no longer in the preseason. We are now going to a place where people also have been trained and have orders to kill us. And so the mindset has to be, you are ready. Your family is ready. We talk about this all the time. You know, you think about the Spartans and the 300 Spartans and how they were selected to go fight in the Battle of Thermopylae. It wasn't the 300 most fit. It wasn't the 300 that looked the best in their uniform. It wasn't even necessarily the 300 best fighters. It was the 300 who had the families that were strong enough to know that these 300 men were going to die, but you 300 wives are strong enough to get through this. And that's how they were actually selected into the Battle of Thermopylae. It is the mindset knowing that as someone who has lost my brother-in-law and other teammates that I've brought into different units, that I've got to be able to look their family in the eye and be able to say with confidence that I did everything I can to make sure that they were trained, they had the resources, deeply sorry for their loss. Uh, it still chokes me up when I think about it, but that's the mindset. And when you see people 
that are overly excited about this or acting in a JV manner, it's time to grab them by the shoulders and say, this is real. Someone here may come back dead. Hopefully we all come back alive. And this was the same for me. My first deployment to Somalia, I wasn't quite ready, but I remember standing there on Afgoye Road, looking down at my black boots and saying, okay, wow, I was just in high school about a year and a half ago. How'd this happen? So it's a quick touch of reality. It's not a video game. And that mindset means you're financially ready, that you've done the things you need to do so that, you know, your family's taken care of, or maybe you're a single guy like I was. And so the things that are, that you need to have taken care of, God forbid your car, you have a friend that can take care of that. So someone you can trust. So the mindset isn't necessarily just about clicking it on when you're starting to engage an enemy in any domain, air, land, sea, space, or cyber. It's well before that. You've got to be ready before you show up because the moment you show up, if you're just now getting ready, it's usually too late. Yeah. Let's go back to Somalia. Yeah. When you were looking at your boots. Yeah. And what was going through your mind? Oddly enough, luck played into that because I wasn't even supposed to be on that deployment. An individual hurt themselves. And so I had the opportunity to go on that deployment and I was excited and wanted to. But when we were getting ready for that mission, things like the famous Black Hawk Down mission and all of that, that had already happened. We were going in in 1994 by direction of the president of the United States to help the United States Army move out. That was the guidance and the direction. And so as I stood around there, there weren't necessarily people shooting at me, but there was a ton of gunfire and you couldn't tell what was where. And the difference in, in putting yourself in combat or watching it is you never let the stress down. You're at a heightened sense of alert always which is why it's harder to sleep. It's sometimes that's what, that's why we call it R and R. You got to go away and take a break because you haven't allowed yourself to just take a breath for a moment and assess the situation. So for me, 18 year old, I was there in Mogadishu. I remember on the ship working with the teammates as they built different models in the Olympic stadium. And so I had a decent idea of what the terrain looked like. And then I found myself there and I was like, oh my God, this is real. And it was, yeah. This might sound salacious, but there's a point to this because I think a lot of people don't reach their full performance potential or full potential in life because of fear, right? Yeah. And as a Marine, you had to have been f afraid that first time you experienced a firefight or knew that you were going into to danger. How do you overcome that fear? And I wonder if you can relate it to other fears that people might have that, that are holding them back. So I think you would have to define the fear and I'll help you there, but there's layers of the fear. My greatest fear though was never ever myself. It's always, am I going to let my commander down, my boss down or my Marines? And so that was always my thought, even as a junior enlisted Marine is I had a squad leader that assigned me that certain area that I had to be. And I didn't have the central command commander's guidance and intent. I didn't know what the regimental commander, even the Marine Expeditionary Unit, that colonel, I didn't know exactly what their intent was. I just knew that my non-commissioned officer needed me there because that was where trucks were going to come in and out of. And I was going to pull security to make sure that that went well. Ultimately, that's because the president of the United States said we were going to get things out of there. And so I played a small part in that and I didn't want to let my teammates down. Now, as I heard gunfire and everything, I was like, my goodness, I really don't want that to come this way. But I also had maybe an arrogance, but an, a, a, an extreme confidence that the training we had gone through was really good. And so I felt like if I needed to, 
I know how to get on the radio and call for fire. I know how to call in a medevac on a helicopter. I know how to engage the enemy, even as a young 18-year-old. So we had trained really hard at night it, when it was cold in different places. And so the fear in the layered approach was, again, I can't let my folks down. I can't let my boss down. Yeah, this is scary. You're hearing different noises. You're hearing for the first time ever prayers going off at different hours of the day. And as a young kid growing up in the United States, I wasn't used to that, familiar with that. Different smells, tires being burnt here, all sorts of things, wild animals running around, dogs and cats, if you will. And so you're never off. But the fear, I think, is different for each person. And it wasn't overwhelming to me that I couldn't do my job because I think, again, going into that, the mindset of the training we did was really, really challenging. You know, we had to get certified to do that, to do those missions, and it allowed us to do different jobs. And what was interesting is I wasn't even a member of the infantry unit and probably in in normal times wouldn't have been doing that job. But because the infantry was doing other things, part of my squadron was asked to support that mission set. And absolutely, I was going to do it. It's interesting that your fear was not physical harm or even death. It was supporting the people you were with. How do you get there? Because that may be the case in the military. It's not the case where other people work. There's this idea to create an environment of pro-social behavior. Basically, what that means is I am going to do what's best for the team even if it means I have to sacrifice something for myself. To use a basketball analogy, I could put up 30 points, but we might lose. I could score 15 points and play better defense or pass the ball to the right player at the right time and we'll win. So how do you get people to do that? You join the Marine Corps, uh, you join the Army, you join the Air Force, they don't join you. And I know that sounds cliche, but I didn't join to be an intelligence professional, a senior enlisted leader. I wanted to be a part of that legacy of something greater than myself. And I think when you commit to that and you're all in, you tend to think of others before yourself. It is service before self. A lot of police officers, I think, would have that mindset of that. Certainly when they go on patrol, I'm sure they're scared, they're nervous, they're at a heightened sense of alert, state of alert, excuse me, but they're thinking of other people. And so I don't want to come across as some hero or anything. That's not what I'm saying, absolutely scared, absolutely nervous. But I remember in Tikrit, one of our last missions there, we were training the Iraqis. I was part of a transition team and I was in Tikrit. We were training them on the basics of small arms fire. And some vehicle had driven by our compound and they were doing what we called spray and pray. They were just driving by. If they hit someone, great. If not, they were going to move. They were going to move so fast we couldn't get there. Every single person on my team, 12 Marines and a Navy corpsman, ran to the sound of the gunfire, every single one of us. And we weren't extraordinary people. But I think if you were to put other units of the Department of Defense uh, of any service, they knew that they would do the same thing because we can't have that idiot running around shooting at us every day. I've got to take them out. I think it wasn't so much of overwhelming bravery or heroics. It was, we have a mission to do. And as long as that guy is going to continue to do this for the 13 months we're out here, we're going to have a problem. When you're in a combat situation, how do you assess the readiness of someone on the fly? Are you ready? Do you look in their eyes? What sort of behaviors are you looking for? And then how do you correct it if they're not? Here's an example. I was at the Air Force Academy a few days ago, and we were going through some academic classes. I spoke to several classes, and then we talked about grit. And they said, hey, Master Guns, let us show you our combatives course. 
So they're showing us where they're doing martial arts. They're flipping these young canets. They're throwing them. They're punching them. They're putting them in holds. They're beating them up. And I said to the two that were following me, I said, do you know why I trust you? Why I think you're ready? And they said, no, why? I said, look at your ears. They both had the broken cauliflower ears. That was a way to assess their readiness. And I knew that I had people that were there with me that understood the tradecraft because they had been through the grit and the grind. The same thing, you know, in the military, in the Marine Corps, when you're downrange, when you go downrange, rarely do you go. And that's the first time you meet your team. But if you do it long enough, you may get combat replacements and you have to assess their readiness. And so you'll go through some drills before you'll go out to the wire. You'll see if they are understanding of how you do business as a team. Do they, when they hold their weapon, do they keep their fingers straight or do they put it on the trigger? Little things like that, that show that they're a professional. And I think those are little things that you look for in the individual. And then as that deployment goes on, you really got to make sure and both self-assess, but assess your team. Do they need breaks? And I had a captain on my 13-month deployment who uh, he was the assistant team leader. He said to me, he said, hey, uh, you need to take some leave. I said, I'm not going to take any leave. I want to do the whole deployment with the team. And rightfully so. He recognized that it wasn't so much that I was deployed to Iraq. It was at some point I was going to have to deploy home. And that was going to be harder for me. The mission was really easy. Every single day we went outside the wire. We, we did our mission. We put on our gear. We trained the Iraqis for combat. We stayed with them. And then once a week, we'd come back, get cleaned up, eat some hot chow, take a hot shower and do that sort of thing. And so he recognized that I had to go back. And that's something as leaders you've got to do. Look your folks in the eye and make sure, hey, even though they're saying that they're okay, are they actually you know, I use that, that cauliflower ear as an example, but there's others as well. Are they holding the weapon right? Are they doing the tactics right? Are they doing the basics and fundamentals necessary to win? Yeah. Getting back to culture and empowerment and feedback, I think as a leader, if you can create the right culture and if you can empower others, you only have two eyes, yeah. right? You can't see everything, but maybe some of the other people on the team are identifying things for you or just correcting behaviors on your behalf. Yeah. Because they see that maybe somebody, it does have their finger on the trigger and that's dangerous. And so they correct that behavior. If you can't do those basics and fundamentals here at Colorado Springs or wherever your headquarters is, you're going to have a hard time doing the really difficult and dynamic things in combat. And so customs and courtesies, the, those basic things that we require of all of our soldiers and joint service members matter there and they matter equally in combat. And there used to be this idea that well, I'm a garrison Marine or I'm a combat Marine. It matters both times. Discipline, hard training tend to lead to success on the battlefield, but arrogance and not obeying the rules and lack of customs and courtesies tend to lead to challenges, whether those are sexual harassments, suicidal ideations, failure on the battlefield, all those types of things. And you've got to be able to do it before you leave. You don't want to be caught off guard. Is there anything else you want to talk about related to combat leadership? Don, you did a really good podcast and an update on Martin Luther King that you talked about things well to the left of it that I never even knew. And I really love that one. But what I love about that is reading more and listening to that is it was, and I have a dream speech, not I have a planned speech. Why I say that is because people follow leaders that have a vision that can think further out. And I mean that, I say that again, if I have a plan, you're probably a manager, not a leader. People followed Martin Luther King and still follow that vision that he's long gone, but his message lives on. And that's inspirational. And it's someone who was thinking further down, not here's my plan. No, it's a vision. It's a movement. 
collectively. You've been leading in the Marine Corps for many years. You've been involved with the Marine Corps almost 30 years. What have you learned about leadership during that time that applies outside of the military? Well, the first thing I've learned is you don't, there is no end. You don't reach the latch page of the internet. You don't say, I'm now a leader. I've made it. I've learned everything I can learn. You have to take the approach of constantly learning, continuing to improve yourself, embracing new challenges. When I started doing this decades ago, the internet was an idea, but we weren't fully using it. Now you have a phone in your hand that has more power than uh, the first space shuttle that we put into uh, orbit. So it's just, it's an evolution of things. And so what can I take into the commercial sector? I think one, I don't fully know, but I would imagine that CEOs, that leaders out there, vice presidents, you name it, want someone who can solve hard problems, who can take on the most difficult issues, whether they're culture, whether they're clients, whether they are customers, you name it. And how do we solve those hard problems and get to the root cause of what we can bring as an organization and a company to solve that? I have a friend, he owns, I think, seven or eight Burger Kings. And we were talking recently about the challenges of that environment. And he's telling me how hard it is to just hire people that can do the basic things. And I said, well, what if you had a group of folks that can do this and this in leadership? He's like, oh my God, I'm trying to do that. And I'm the, I own all of these companies. So I think military service members, whether you did four years or 40, bring an awful lot to the organizations in the, the commercial sector, wherever they're going to work in the private sector, because they've been put in leadership positions from day one. Again, 18-year-old in Mogadishu, Somalia. That doesn't translate on a bio or a resume very well, but that is a stress unlike any other. And it's not, hey, we're out of paper today. You know, oh my God, we're, how are we going to print off the TPS report? It's real. And I think as leaders in the commercial sector, hopefully they're looking to hire more folks that have served because they bring an awful lot. Not just the technical skill sets and the degrees and all this other stuff. It is the grit and the grind, the willing to solve the hardest problems, to take on the greatest challenges whether they're people-related or technology-related. Mental health has been in the news a lot, particularly since the pandemic. You introduced me to Major Lauren Serrano. I did an episode with her on mental health and on suicide. It's the most popular episode that we've ever done out of 100 episodes. This is a topic that will continue. The pandemic has a long tail, and mental health will be one of the things that we watch as an outcome from the pandemic. Marines are incented and trained to be resilient. Yeah. How can leaders balance the need for resilience and mental health? It is a tough one. There are PhDs, there are leaders of every ilk out there that have talked through this, that have read about it, that have studied it, that have written about it. Major Serino is an exceptional officer. She has dealt with it firsthand. I have dealt with it firsthand in other areas. My uncle, who retired out of the Marine Corps, took his life two years after retiring. And so I have lived through that as well. And so I think there isn't a checklist of do this and do that, and you're guaranteed success. But what I think was helpful for me and what I saw that did work was small unit leadership. Because I sit in a nice office next to a four-star, and we see the force for a little bit of time every day. But the small unit leaders get to see their folks all the time. And so little things like meeting together in the morning and doing physical fitness together. It's not 
necessarily about the fact that we're going to do physical fitness and go for a run together. It's that when I got there, I saw Lance Corporal Jones was having a hard time. And now I have some time to sit with him and talk to see what's going on. Is your hip bothering you? Are you doing okay? What's going on in your life? So I can address the issue. And so that's what small unit leaders are able to do. A part of it is mental health, but I really focus on total body health, whether that's physical, mental, spiritual, you name it. And then when someone is having a challenge, I think the beauty of of this conversation is that we're now far more open to getting help and that sort of thing. I remember we talked about that Somali deployment I did in 1994. When I came home off the USS Guam and we pulled in and came back to Marine Corps Air Station, New River, and the commander said, okay, everyone, you're released, fall out. Everyone had family members coming up to them. Everyone had uh, loved ones and that sort of thing. And it was me and a couple others who had, didn't have anybody. The gunny was there. He gave us the keys to our room. And that was it. And I can tell you, some people would have struggled through that because we had now had four days off. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. I didn't, where, what am I supposed to do here? I learned through that. That's not the right way to do business. I'm not saying he was malicious or anything, but that's not how we can do business anymore. And it's horrible. I think there's a stat, and I'm probably off on this a little bit, but like that first year of when you get out of the armed forces, whether you retire or just you finish your tour, the odds of suicide are greatly increased then because you no longer have that connection. The day I leave here, I'm the former senior enlisted leader. And I'm sure someone will pick up the phone and that sort of thing, but I'm not connected as I once was. I'm now an outsider. I'm a used to be. And I think that is that's hard for a lot of us. And so whether it's the VFW, whether it's any other organizations, I encourage folks to stay connected, to do those reunions, those organizational reunions where they can. I encourage folks to listen to, uh, to that podcast that Major Serrano and you did. I sent that out to a lot of folks. I thought it was remarkable. Last topic. Okay. And I'm drawing on memory here, but if I remember correctly, there was a time when we talked, might have been at a dinner, you talked about the topic of love and leadership. Am I remembering that correctly? You are, yeah. So tell me what role love has in leadership. So I've, I've said this before, I think it's the most important leadership trait. The Marine Corps has 14 leadership traits. I can recite them all for you verbatim, but I think love is the most important one. And the reason I say that is because when you truly love your people, you're willing to advise and counsel them. And when they're not doing well, give them the advice that they need. But if you don't necessarily care about them or love them, you may not put the weight of the effort into certain things. And so when you love your organization, when you love your team, when you believe fully in what you do, you tend to be all in as a leader. And I think that shows in professional sports teams where you may have high school football coaches that could leave and make a lot more money, but they love what they do and who they do that with. Now, granted, they may eventually for their family, go take more money elsewhere. But that's where I'm at today is I love what I do, who I do that with, the people I work with. And I think that's that's an incredibly important leadership trait that we don't necessarily teach in the military. And it's not because we're hiding from it. We probably define it differently. I just try to put that word in people's face and make them think about that. Wow, we're fathers, right? And our children sometimes misbehave. We care about them. So we're going to correct that. Not because we enjoy making corrections, not because we want to get up off the couch and make another correction. It's because we want to see them succeed and do well. And if you love your people enough, it's the same thing. You want to see them do well. Officer, enlisted, civilian, contractor, it doesn't matter. Let me tell you something through my experiences and the way you're going down the path right now. 
I don't see that necessarily working, and here's ways to correct it. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say, it would be nice to put a couple officers in the corner and say, okay, you're grounded. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is it's unusual that leaders talk about love, and I think for a number of reasons, but the last team that I led in corporate America, I love them. Yeah. Every single one of them, we still meet to this day. We still have Zoom calls. They're dispersed around the country. At the end of a phone call, I will say, I love you. And they will say, I love you back. And I decided after this team, I will never work with somebody again who I don't love or I can't love. Meaning somebody who doesn't have qualities that eventually I will love them if they come onto my team. And that was just a promise that I made for myself because it's, it's so important. And the way you are talking about being a father, when you're correcting some, a child or a member of your team who you love, you do it in the most empathetic way possible, right? You, yeah. Oh, yeah. you yeah. don't do it in the most expedient way. You need to correct this to make them feel bad. But when you love them, you have to correct the behavior, but you do it in a way that makes them feel good about it. And they know and can walk away knowing that you care with their dignity and a desire and motivation to make that change. I think it's so powerful. It's huge. You know, Don, I've had conversations with folks about my future in the corporate world, and they'll usually start the conversation about dollars or where you want to live. And for me, it's always, I've got to believe in what I'm doing and I got to be able to agree, believe in the people I'm with. And uh, all those other things will happen. But man, if I'm not, if I don't enjoy the team I'm I'm around, if I dread this, it's not going to matter if there's an extra couple of zeros on the paycheck. I'm going to have to go find something else. I've got to love and believe in what I do because, uh, you know, whether I'm sponsoring or selling something or whatever, it's got my name attached to it. I got to believe in that. So yeah, the whole, the idea of how you do that with children, it's not a hundred percent the same with your people. But it's an analogy that most people understand where I'm coming from is I do love my kids enough. And, you know, it's hard with a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And I'll have another child probably by the time this is out. But patience, it's something you learn as a father. It's It's another trait you need as a leader at these levels for a variety of different reasons. And for me, love will always be the most important leadership trait. Yeah. Yeah. Master Gunnery Sergeant Stalker, thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you again for being a genius. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. And thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode on the topic of leadership. Thanks to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.